Romans chapter 3. I'm just going to read part of it beginning at verse 9, Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The section that we read there begins uh, in verse 9 in the NIV. It says, what shall we conclude then? Literally, what then? Paul is summing up all that he's been saying in the preceding verses. If you can remember that far back in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's God's power for the salvation of everyone who believes. There's his great statement that launches the letter, and then he begins to explain why this gospel is uh, powerful, why we need a powerful gospel. He says, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Well, the question is, and why is that important then? Why is it so important that God should give us righteousness? Aren't we good enough? And so he then builds his case through the verses leading up to this, demonstrating that no one is good enough for God, Jew and Gentile, whether having the law of God or ignorant of the law of God, everyone is in exactly the same position. And he's dealt with things, he's uh, imagined people objecting to what he's saying, raising questions, he answers the questions, deals with the objections, and then comes to verse 9 then. Well, what then? Are we any better Who's he talking about when he says we? Who, who's he referring to? Well, most would reckon uh, that he's talking about the Jews. I think the ESV indeed, those who use that Bible, will find that they have slipped that word in there. It is not in the original. I'll just say that. The NIV is more accurate at this point. just like to score a few points when I can. Um, are we any better... It could be referring to the Jews. It could be referring to Christians. But the, and, and if you have a footnote in your Bible, you see it equally could be translated, are we any worse? So there's a lot of question about what he's saying, but the point is clear. Are there any distinctions? Are we all in the same position? Does anyone have a head start over anyone else? Not at all. He says this is the conclusion. This sums up all he's been looking at 
no one has any advantage over anyone else. Now, in verse 1, of course, of this chapter, he says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? He says, much in every way. Yes, there are great privileges, but no one actually has a head start. Great privileges in being a Jew, we could say, great privileges in being, in being raised in a Christian family. To have known Bible stories from infancy. To have grown up with parents who teach you to pray. Great advantages, great privilege. But no one has a head start. Everyone needs salvation. Everyone needs a saviour. What then? Are we any better? Not at all. In terms of standing with God, we are all equal. In what way equal? Well, he says, we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike, that is everyone, are all under sin. Regardless of race, regardless of privileges, regardless of how we started out in life, regardless of our status in life now, regardless of what you have heard or haven't heard, everyone alike, all alike, are, it says, under sin. No one is born innocent. Children are not born innocent. We are all under sin. That is the human condition because of our involvement in what Adam did right at the beginning, taking the human race away from God, that's us. And Paul has been dealing with that in the, the, the past two chapters. We don't go back over his arguments, but this is the conclusion. where Everyone alike is under sin. No one's born innocent. No one is born in a special position with God. All are under sin. Now that expression, under sin, implies captive to something. It's like sin is not just what we do. Sin is a power. Sin is the power that makes us do what we do. And we are captive to that power. We're under it. It's like it's got authority over us. We're not free to move out from under it. We are under sin. In chapter 6, Paul is going to say more about that. But in verse 6, he says, he, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. And then this, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. No longer. Because we're, that's how we're born. We're born as slaves to sin. Under sin. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 22. Galatians 3 and verse 22. He uses this expression. Um, he says, the whole world is a prisoner of sin. The scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. We are under sin, which explains why people do what they do. It explains why people can't be good enough for God. It explains why people can struggle, decide to turn over a new leaf. They're going to do this, they're going to do that. But something always draws them back. And it's this, we're under this. It's a power that dominates. Why is that? Well, we read in chapter 1 that God has given people over to their choices. We're given over to it, and that's how we're born, that's how we're raised, that is our condition. So it's a 
a big thing that he's saying here. We've already made the charge, he says, that that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Having made that great statement, he feels he needs to back it up. Obviously, it's quite a controversial thing to say. And so he goes on to say, as it is written. And then we have verses 10 through to 18. A sequence of quotations from the Old Testament. The footnotes will tell you where they come from. They come from some of the Psalms, from Ecclesiastes, from Isaiah. But a number of different quotations, all backing up this statement that we're all under sin. But before we look at those quotations, let's just note what Paul is doing. Let's see his method. He has made a statement, and then he feels he's got to back it up from Scripture. That's a good thing to do. It's a good thing that we don't just give the impression to people that we're sharing with them what our ideas, our view of life. No, it is written, he says. But the second thing to note is this. Paul is writing this, or dictating this, because that's what he's doing, he's dictating it to someone called Tertius, who is writing it all down. So Paul's dictating it, but he's dictating it hundreds and hundreds of years before the invention of printing. In other words, Paul is not doing what I do here, flick through his Bible to come up with those references. He doesn't have a Bible. Sunday by Sunday, he's been in the synagogue and he's been a Pharisee, so he's studied the Scriptures. He has memorized Scripture. All of these verses that he quotes, he's surely quoting from memory. Wow. So he's making a statement, we're all under sin. This needs backing up. So now he brings some verses out that are all stored in his memory. If you check them against the Old Testament, you see, he doesn't quote them all exactly right. Well, memory doesn't always get it exactly right, but he's got the substance of it, text after text after text. Let's just learn from his method. It's good to get Scripture into your memory. And my observation is, it's better to start young. I think it's around age 20, isn't it, when your memory starts to deteriorate. When you get to my age, it gets serious. You know, you look in the mirror and think, I know the face, but I can't put a name to it. (laughs) When up to age 20, your memory is most retentive. That means you remember more easily. Children... Start learning what the Bible says. Try to get it in here. Read a verse and try and say it back. I I can still remember verses that I learned as a teenager. find it harder to remember things that I've tried to learn more recently. Get Get God's Word into your brain. Get it inside you. So that when you're talking with people and... You want to back it up and say, well, in the Bible it says, and you've got it. You don't have to think, oh, where's my Bible? I haven't got one with me. No, you have. It's inside. That's what Paul's doing. He's made a statement, then he backs it up, a whole sequence of verses, one after the other, bang, 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 and it's all coming out of his memory. Commit it to memory. Learn it. 
Get people to test you. It doesn't matter what version you use. Seriously, it doesn't matter what version you use. He's not quoting the Hebrew Old Testament most times. He's quoting from the Greek. He's quoting from a translation. It's not the best translation, but he quotes it. It doesn't matter what version you use, as long as you get God's word in. You don't have to get it word perfect, but more or less. And so you're quoting scripture, quoting not your words, but God's word. So that's what Paul does. Made a statement, we're all under sin. Then, all of these verses, first of all, in verses 10 through to to verse 12, really, verses that kind of describe our condition. Amazing statements. There is no one righteous, not even one. That's quite a statement. There is no one righteous, not even one. Plenty of good people around. A lot of good people. What he's talking about here is when people measure up to God's plumb line. When God puts his spirit level on you or whatever, that's when you discover no one, no one is righteous. Everyone is out of line in some area or maybe in many areas. We can try hard. Some people try very hard and are very, very good. But measured by God's standard, there is no one righteous, not even one. Amazing. There is no one who understands. Understands what? Understands what God wants. Understands who God is. Well, it says back in chapter 1 and verse 21, Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. Their thinking became futile. That's it. No one understands because there's a twist put into our, into our brain. So we naturally, we cannot understand God. We just don't get it. Maybe you've had that experience of you're talking with someone who isn't yet a believer. They, they can maybe even want to believe. And you, you maybe then show them some things in the Bible and they say, I just don't get it. Have I had people say it to you? I just don't get it. I wish I believed what you believe, they could say. I wish I could be like you, but I just don't get it. No, that's what it says. There is no one who understands. We cannot naturally understand God. It's, we can hear things, but it's kind of just, it bounces off. Can't really get hold of it. No, there is no one who seeks God. Yeah, well, there are many people who, in a way, they seek God. They can be very, very religious. But in terms of actually wanting the living God as he is, no. There's a bias. It's like when you try to push two magnets together. They just kind of repel each other. And that's how we are with God. There is no one who seeks God. We can be interested in religion. We can be interested in what other people believe. But in terms of the living God, there's an inbuilt hostility, a bias against him. All have turned away. Turning to alternatives, to science, to nature, to other religions, to self-esteem, whatever. People have all turned away and they have together become worthless, together become corrupt. There's a description of people under sin. Everyone is in that position. He then goes on to describe how that works out then in action. There is no one who does good. 
not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit and so on. If you look through verses 13 to 18, see a number of references to different parts of the body. Throats, tongues, lips, mouths, feet, eyes, all mentioned. Theologians have come up with the doctrine of total depravity. Have you ever heard references to total depravity? Saying we are totally depraved. What I mean by that is that we're not as, they're not saying we're as bad as it's possible to be. They are saying we're not as good as we should be. And that affects every part of us. Total depravity. Every part of us is spoilt by sin. And so it refers to various parts of us, throats, tongues, lips, feet, eyes, whatever. Every part of us is spoilt by sin. And so it refers a lot there to things that people say. Their throats, their tongues, their lips, their mouths. Jesus said, what's in the heart comes out of your mouth. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Because of rebellion against God in people's hearts, because of sin in people's hearts, comes out of the mouth. And so the death, as it were, that's inside comes out. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Now, not everyone is, as I say, as bad as it's possible to be, but this is what we see people are like. Can you trust people? Yeah. When The Apprentice is on, we tend to watch it week by week. Do you watch The Apprentice? It's not a great blessing, I have to say. But you see this bunch of totally objectionable people, carefully selected, and the object is one of them is going to be the apprentice of Lord Sugar, as he now is, Alan Sugar. What you see, the horrible thing you see with these people is they all want that position, and they freely admit they will lie through their teeth in order to get that job. They will, you, you see them really attacking one another, criticizing one another, and then behind their backs, and then embracing one another. You think, total deception, appearing to be friends, and yet sticking the life in the back when they get an opportunity. Now, that's extreme, and yet it happens. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Just a bite and there's poison. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Feet swift to shed blood. Look at the world as it is. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways not only in war zones but in inner city areas. There is violence. There is bloodshed. The way of peace they don't know. That's true. This is what humanity is like. And the basic reason for it all is in that last verse, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the problem. No fear of God before their eyes. No respect for God. No humbling before God. No submission to God. No fearing who he is. 
That's a quote from Psalm 36. And uh, in Psalm 36, the psalmist goes on. He says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. For in his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. That's the ungodly man. No fear of God before his eyes. For in his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. I'm good enough, they say. Nothing wrong with them. No one's perfect, are they? But, uh, and that self-flattery and not fearing God. There's the condition. Paul goes through all of those scriptures to back up what he said. All alike are under sin. And then he imagines, verse 19 onwards, that perhaps uh, a Jew would, would retort, yeah, but that's describing other people. It is not describing us. That's describing people who know nothing about God, but that is not true of Israel. That's not true of the people of God. He imagines someone saying that. And so he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. It's not just talking about other people. He says, you people have got God's word. This is talking about you. It's talking about you. And the outcome is so that every mouth may be silenced speechless. That's the conclusion he's been working to because that's the preparation that is the launch pad for the good news into which he's moving. This place of being rendered speechless. It's as if someone's on trial, they're in the dock and the evidence for the prosecution is being brought. They have maybe pleaded not guilty But then there's the evidence. There's CCTV footage. And would you believe it, as you look at the CCTV footage, the defendant actually looks at the camera. It's clear. And then there are witnesses. That was the guy. We saw him. I took a picture of him on my mobile phone. The evidence piles up. And then there's DNA evidence. There are fingerprints everywhere. And so the evidence is brought. It's all stacked up. And then the judge turns to the defendant and says, have you anything to say? Well, speechless. It's not worth saying anything. There is nothing to say because of the sheer weight of evidence. That's what Paul is saying here. There's all of this so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. When we stand before God, the evidence is stacked up against us. There's nothing to say. There's no excuse. We can't say, well, I didn't know. Or it was someone else's fault. It was the way I was brought up. It was my parents. It was the group I got in with. (laughs) There's nothing to say. Nothing to say. The evidence is there. And Paul stacks it all up here. He goes through the scriptures. He looks at what's happening in the world. We've gone through it over recent weeks. And it comes to this point where no one has anything to say. The other side of that coin, however, is good news. The other side of that coin is that actually no one is more lost than anyone else. Before God, we are all equal. Now, for us who are Christians... When we want to share the gospel with people, it's all too easy for us to get into our thinking that some people are harder than others. 
that some people are, are more likely to become a Christian and other people less likely. We can perhaps make the mistake of looking at people who, who are just respectable, clearly nice people. And now, you know, think of next Saturday when we go out treasure hunting. It's much easier to go up to someone who looks nice than someone who looks like, wow, they've got problems. And we can think the person who looks nice is more likely to become a Christian. We can even heard people say, looking at someone who isn't a Christian, oh, they'd make a good Christian. Because they just look like they could be. And then there's someone else, wow, they've got problems. They've clearly got problems. The way they've dressed, the way they look, everything about them exudes the vibes coming out of them, problems. And you think, well, that one's more likely to be saved than that one. No. We are all alike under sin. All alike under sin. It's not about our status in society. It's not about where we live. It's not about what we've got into. The problem is sin. And it says all alike, the whole, every mouth silenced, the whole world accountable to God. So in reaching out to people, let's not make the mistake of thinking some are harder than others. Remember who's writing this letter. Paul persecuted the church, violent in his hatred of Christians. You'd have thought, if we want to see someone saved, we'll try someone easier than this guy. But God saved him. Because his condition was no worse than anyone else's. Sin. So for Christians, don't view people in a human kind of way. See people as God sees them. And how God sees them is, they're a sinner. An ordinary sinner. Just an ordinary sinner. All alike under sin. If you're not a Christian, never think that it's easier for others than it is for you. Never think that others are more likely to get saved than you because of your problems. Your problem, singular, your problem is sin. That's your problem. And that's the same for everyone. That's the issue. That's the thing that stands between you and God. Not your social problems. Not anything else. It's sin. And that's the same as everyone. If you're an unbeliever and you're here this morning, look around, all around you, there are people who are saved. They were once like you. You might say, oh, no, they weren't. They look much nicer. No, 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 no. They were sinners. God saved them. That's the, that's the problem. And it's the same for everyone. All alike under sin. Every mouth silenced. The whole world held accountable. It's not easier for some and harder for others. It's the same problem. And everyone needs to come to this point. This needs to become part of our story that we have been rendered speechless. We come to a place where we say, I've got nothing to say. I am guilty. 
It is vital. Paul is building his case. He's coming through to speak about the gospel. If we're ever going to appreciate the gospel, we need to come to a place where we've got nothing to say. Where we're speechless, accountable, guilty as charged. So let me say, have you been rendered speechless? Have you come to that place? <laughs> guilty. I haven't got a leg to stand on. How? I, I've got nothing to offer God. I, yeah, I'm, I may view myself, I flatter myself, I'm better than someone else, but hey, I've just suddenly seen God's plumb line. Got nothing to say. I'm guilty. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. There's nothing we can do. We can't pull ourselves up by our own bootlaces. We can't do anything. The very law that we want to observe actually points to our sin. We're undone. We are rendered speechless. Now, what Paul is saying here is all preparation for what he's going to come into, and it is vital preparation. We've got to come to the place where we say, I haven't got a leg to stand on, so that... We can have a genuine turning to Christ. A healthy relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ depends on a proper conversion. And a proper conversion depends on a proper understanding of the very things we're looking at here. You've got to come to this place where you see, I am totally bad. Every part of me is totally bad. I may be not as bad as other people, but actually, if God's spotlight came into every area of my life, we'd see their sin, sin, sin. We've got to come to that place. A proper conversion depends on a proper understanding of just how bad we are. And if we, if we fudge that... If there's uncertainty about that, there will always be problems later. Got to start here. Proper conversion begin, depends on a proper understanding of this. And if there's not a proper understanding of this, there will be problems later. We need to know this if we're going to turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when you realize how bad you are, then when you face Christ, you know what you need. You know that what you need above everything else is to be forgiven. You don't, if you think you're pretty good, if you think, well, I understand about sin, no one's perfect, are they? I'm not perfect, but then actually we can think we're doing God a favor. Or if we hear the kind of message God thinks you're wonderful. We think, yeah, well, so do I. Well, now I expect God to just show how wonderful he thinks I am because he's going to start just making me successful and prosperous. And that's what I deserve. I'm worth it. I'm worth nothing. Got to come to that place where we see what we need. When we see what we need, we see what I need is righteousness. The very thing he's been talking about. That's what I desperately need. I, it's not happiness that I desperately need. I'd like to be happy, but that's not my desperate need. 
It's not success. I'd like to be successful. That's not what I, what I really need is something that deals with my sin because one day I'm going to stand face to face with God and I dare not because I can't do anything about this fact. I'm under this power. I'm under sin. I sin because I'm under it and I can't get out from under it. I need a savior. We need to know what we need. Many people you see who never been rendered speechless, are looking to God just for nice things he's going to do. And when he doesn't deliver the goods in our thinking, we get stroppy. Hey, I asked God for this. I really believed for it, and he didn't do it. As if, naughty God. Hey, wait a minute. We can't treat. There's no fear of God before their eyes, Paul says. Yeah, there isn't. How dare we view God as some kind of slot machine? We put in our faith, he delivers the goods. He's God, he's holy, and what we really need is forgiveness. We know what we can't do. We know who we are. And so we're going to come and get justified through faith. Because we know We can't produce anything. We're just going to believe. We're ready for the gospel. You see, that is the gospel. Just believe. Well, don't have to do anything. We can't do anything. Everything we do is like our hands are filthy and everything we touch is made dirty. We can't do anything. We've got nothing in our hands. We started with that song. Here I stand with nothing in my hands. That's the position. Just believe. We're ready to come by faith. And we know that we're all coming on the same level. No one's got a head start. And so we can be saved just as well as others can. It's not too difficult. We're ready. When, we, when we're rendered speechless, we're ready to turn in the right way. And then, having turned, we've admitted our guilt We've simply believed and we've received forgiveness by faith. We, we contributed sin, that's all. We can't do anything else. He forgives us freely. We know we're forgiven. Having come to that place, then that's how we live. Always dependent on God's grace. When Paul was writing to the Galatians, and indeed in many of his letters, the same thing crops up. He's writing to people who had begun in that way, knowing they had nothing in their hands. And then they drift into thinking they've got to kind of earn things. So in Galatians chapter 3, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He says, Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law? In other words, by things you did or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Well, many people are that foolish. We come and receive salvation, and then we think, now we've got to earn things. No, if we realize how worthless and empty and useless we are, then we always simply receive by faith. 
We don't drift into legalism. We don't drift into thinking we've got to try and achieve something in order to get God's blessing. We will always depend on grace. And also, we've got an enemy. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brothers. If we start by being made speechless, we're in a very good position for dealing with accusations from the devil. You know, you're just about to take some step of faith and the devil whispers in your ear, you're no good. What makes you think you can do that? We could then immediately just shrivel. But if we've come to that place of speechlessness, when the devil says, you're no good, you just simply say, I agree. I never was any good. And I'm no good now, but I stand in grace. That's our position. We've got nothing to offer. When, when the devil accuses us of what we've just done, our answer is, that's only the half of it. I'm much worse than that. Because I always was. I'm, I was under sin. I had nothing to offer. And I'm totally dependent on the mercy of God. And because I'm totally dependent on the mercy of God, no accusation can stick. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we're justified through faith. We came to that place where we realized we could contribute nothing into it. And so we stand in grace. We can deal with the accuser. I never was any good. And we know our emptiness. We know that we can't do anything. And that's a very good start point for receiving from God. It's, it's a good position to know you haven't got anything. In other words, if anything's going to happen, it's going to be God. That's an excellent position. In the next chapter, in Romans chapter 4 and verse 19, Paul is speaking about Abraham without, weaken, without weakening in his faith. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. God has given him a promise, you're going to be a father. He's now past, he's seriously old, his wife is seriously old. He faces the fact his body is as good as dead. But he didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. He, Abraham, said, I haven't any power. God has got all the power. I'm trusting him. If we have never been rendered speechless, if we think we've got something to offer, then that's how we face challenges, wondering if we can come up with it. Have we got the ability? Have we got the... Well, got nothing. It's, it's an excellent position when when maybe we're praying for someone to be healed. We stand there, the devil immediately starts whispers, you can't do anything. We say, I know. It's wonderful. I can't do anything. I'm absolutely useless. I've got nothing in my hands, nothing in my pockets. I have got nothing to offer. But God can do it. And he's here. To know we've got nothing in our hands, that we were never any good, that we come to that place of, being humble before God lines you up to move in faith. Lines you up to receive gifts from God. Because you know you need Him. And you're cast on Him totally. It's a good way to live to start at this point. It's 
that starting at this point enables you to turn in faith and then it enables you to live in faith, knowing your emptiness and then dependent on being filled with the Spirit. And it's all grace. We don't have to deserve anything because we never could. And if you, if you live like that, another thing that will happen is you'll be a worshiper. You will just never lose the sense of amazement that you know God. It takes your breath away that knowing the worst about ourselves, that God loves us. And we also know that there's nothing in us that is praiseworthy and all glory is always His. We will worship. We won't be able to stop. God, God is is a great God. We need a great God because we have great need. Paul is building the case here towards setting out the gospel. And it's vital we come that route. And if we come that route, we come into a very good place. Very good place where anything's possible. Anything's possible. Because we're not messing things up with pride. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. We come at this, in, through this door of total humility before God, then God gives grace because we need him and we know we need him. Around the summer, the start of the summer, a lot of people are getting exam results, GCSEs, A-levels, graduating from university, qualifications are so important, but actually irrelevant before God. They don't give us standing with God. Qualities in our lives, very important, but irrelevant before God. Before God, we all are on the same level, under sin. Got a very great need and a very great offer of salvation, a very great Savior, very great grace that comes to people who admit they've got nothing and saves them and transforms them. Why don't we contribute into it? Just our need. Just our need. And what does he contribute? Everything. Freely. Because we could never earn it. Grace is needed and grace is available. When we come that way and we receive grace, then we just live in it and just keep receiving from God because we know we're not disqualified because we never were qualified and it's always, always grace. That's our gospel. What then, Paul says? What then? What's the conclusion? That's the conclusion of it all. A gospel of grace that we all need and that we can all equally come into. Let's pray.